0: I want to talk tonight about the Brahma Vihara of mudita, that beautiful quality of mind and heart that is expressing joy, joy in the happiness of others, joy in our own happiness. It's traditionally uh, translated this word mudita as sympathetic or empathetic joy, uh, with the emphasis on um, joy in the happiness. Of others. And that's a wonderful thing to contemplate because if we truly can become happy in the happiness of others, of course our chances of happiness grows exponentially. There's so many more possibilities for joy to arise if there really is that sense of openness and and, uh, sympathy, empathy for others' delight and joy. But many of us have a conditioned view, a limited view, that there actually only is so much happiness. And it's kind of like a pie, you know, and whatever slice that someone else takes, that means I get less. And it's interesting how deeply conditioned that view can be, even though we, you know, can turn logically and look at that and see and know that it's not so. You know, there's no slices of happiness that get divided up and more for you means less for me. But it's so interesting to practice with this and and see how that actually limits our capacity for happiness. So to do this practice formally, as James taught you the other day, we take someone that we know that we care about who is happy, who's already happy, and actually spend that time of practice wishing them even more happiness. We wish that their happiness and good fortune continue. May it increase and never wane, and we just say those phrases or some variation of that over and over again. And it can seem like a kind of redundant practice, you know, wishing someone who's happy to be more happy, but it's actually a very challenging practice, as I'm sure you got to experience. And its power is in obviously increasing our potential for happiness, but also in transforming or exposing a subtle sense of envy or limitation that we might have and transforming that into true wishes for happiness and well-being in that other person and obviously for ourselves then. And through that transformation, through that purification that can happen, it can actually become a really delightful practice. Hopefully you got a little bit of a taste of that over these days. I remember when I practiced mudita intensively, I did a number of days of just doing that as a practice and found myself at times getting kind of giddier and giddier with the, the sense of uplift and delight and almost wanting to skip through the meditation hall or the meditation center, which is not a common experience to have around a meditation center, so I had to kind of damp it down a little, but just that sense of uh, enjoyment and delight and... and uh, uplift that came. So really it can be quite wonderful. And of course as we open to this as a practice, and it's not something of course that we only know from a practice, it's something that happens quite spontaneously, but it is powerful to actually um, cultivate it in a conscious way. We see that there are so many opportunities for mudita, for spontaneous mudita, and it's just, a, 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 you know, there's an, a, a door that gets opened that can really fill our hearts, our lives with a lot of delight. One of the best kinds of mudita, as I said, the traditional is, is um, mudita, happiness for someone, in someone else's happiness. I actually think the best kind is shared mudita, where we're actually sharing in a happiness. And I, I, some of you, I'll give you some news that some of you may know about and and be happy about and for me it's actually the best kind of the shared happiness. Some of you may know that Spirit Rock for a number of years now has been going through a very um, uh, complicated and challenging process of getting a master plan amendment for our new development here at Spirit Rock. It's taken many years, many meetings, countless pages of documents that have been prepared And yesterday we had our final, what turned out to be our final um, uh, submission in front of the Board of Supervisors of Marin, and it passed unanimously and quickly um, with great acclamation from the crowd of people who were there. So it was just a wonderful feeling of celebration in that room and obviously since then to feel that. And really, as I said, the best kind, the shared kind, we're all just delighting in this news and this happiness, seeing the happiness in, in others. And for me especially, a, a big part of my happiness was seeing Guy's happiness because he has really borne a lot of the burden of getting this uh, project through the, the, all of the various meetings and, and felt the burden of that. So to see his delight and relief, just it just exla- uh, exa- uh, amplified mine. And that's you know the kind of mudita that we can really... Uh, enjoy and be one it's just wonderful so great news for spirit rock and for all of us and then there's you know the simpler kinds of joy that just happen you know so often in our experiences a classic one is children at christmas kids at christmas you know that opening of the presents, which can sometimes be actually so much of a frenzy it's a little unpleasant. But um, a couple of years ago I was visiting my family who live in Australia and happened to be there for Christmas and I have a lot of relatives and, and uh, nieces and nephews and so there was this frenzy of unwrapping of presents and you know they, these days kids often get very expensive presents but what really struck me was this one present that my dad had given to his granddaughter my niece and he, my dad you, has never been good at buying presents you know it's just not his thing Um, My mother used to do it. She passed away, so he he would try. But what he came up with this time was to go to the reject store. No, the dollar store, the dollar store, (laughs) and just get a bag and fill it with all this stuff. And he gave it to my niece, who was then about eight years old. And that was the biggest hit of the day. She just looked through this thing. She's going like, look, I got a ruler look, I got a sponge, you know, look, I got a clip. And it was all this, you know, 50 cent stuff and she was so happy at getting this present and the iPod and whatever was just left to the side as she just enjoyed this sort of, the, the bounty of this bag of stuff that nothing was very interesting. So it, was, it can just be the simplest things that actually bring the greatest happiness. And so yesterday I had another little gift offering that has brought me a lot of happiness. Very simple. I'll share it with you. Someone wrote me a poem um, anonymously, so I don't know who it is. Um, But I think you all know by now I'm an animal lover and I'm a horse person and I take care of the horses at the front. So this is a horse poem for the horses at the front. It's very simple, but somehow it just tickled me. Bert likes apples. So does Liam. They are the nicest horses. I'm really glad to see them. (laughs) It just tickles me. It's true. So, all of these opportunities, and if if our eyes and hearts are open, they're just magnified because we're surrounded by these possibilities for joy and happiness. To really develop this quality, we of course need to be open to what makes others happy, not necessarily just what makes us happy. Again, in Australia visiting my family, another niece who's older, probably 19 or 20 at this time, was telling me, you know, we're staying with her and her family, that she was planning on going out that night at 11 p.m. Now for me that's a form of hell, you know, to actually go out most nights, what the time, but 11 p.m., but it's like, may you be happy, you know, I'm going to bed, but may you be happy, you just have to, have to open to that, and a cartoon that someone gave me that also tickled me, so it's a, a scene of a little family ice fishing, and so there's icicles around. It's a sort of snowy, icy wasteland. They're all bundled up. You can't even see their faces. They're so bundled up. The father's sitting on a box, and he's got this fishing rod. And these two, you can tell they're kids, but you can't see you know, who they are or what gender or anything. And it's obvious the dad who's saying, it says, the caption is, it doesn't get any better than this, said dad the kids who were hearing this for the first time were too stunned to reply. (laughs) So for dad, that's happiness, ice fishing, not my idea of happiness. Great source of mudita, of this kind of joy, is just nature. and Out here, it's one of the... Uh, pleasures of spirit rock is we're just surrounded by it and I'm sure you've had many moments of just noticing something the trees the plants the animals the sky the grasses it's not ours we don't own it we're not having to be you know there's no sense of being selfish taking possession so there's just this real openness that we can uh, experience that's a true source of joy this kind of mudita And I just read a New York Times article. It always ends up back to animals. This guy has just written a book called The Exultant Arc, A a Pictorial pictorial Tour of Animal Pleasure. And this guy's an animal behaviorist, but he's on on my wavelength. I mean, he basically really feels that animals have feelings, which, I mean, they do. There's no question. Scientists don't like to honor that. So he's just compiled this whole um, book... A lot of photographs of animals that are obviously enjoying what they're doing, and you feel such delight when you see those photographs. You know, he's got photographs of dolphins and beluga whales who blow uh, air bubbles and then dive through them. I mean, why would you do that unless you thought it was fun? (laughs) Or seals, you know, surfing those monkeys, I forget what they're called in Japan, in the snow who go and sit in the hot springs, you see those photos and they're kind of (laughs) hanging out the edge of the hot springs, Uh, you know, the classic ones of lambs gambling and kittens playing, and you know, you, you experience their joy, and it's joyful. We just open up, there's delight in that, it's a beautiful form of mudita, so this access to joy, this quality of joy, is a really important part of our practice. It's a really important part of this terrain of the Brahma-viharas. It's actually said to be the most difficult of the Brahma-viharas, which is a little interesting because, you know, happiness, it seems like that would be, that would be obvious. But it's, it's because of the, the tendency we can have to um, limit our capacity or to think there's not enough to go around. But as you look at this uh, terrain of the Brahma Viharas you can really see how happiness is necessary to balance the compassion practice. To actually keep the heart open it really is supported by also experiencing joy. If it was just suffering and just compassion you know, we can get wearied by that. It can be worn down. So really necessary to bring the joy in, and even to bring the joy into compassionate action, to see the beauty and the happiness in that. Of course, as we really uh, contemplate and deepen this capacity, it highlights the qualities of metta, of seeing the good in others, delighting in their happiness. So it emphasizes that aspect of the metta and it brings a warmth to the equanimity that can sometimes be, you know, it's definitely a cool uh, quality, there's a, a coolness and a balance to it the mudita really brings warmth to that so really very uh, helpful. So I said in practicing mudita it is done traditionally for others and translated as sympathetic or empathetic joy. And it's a really helpful practice to do in that way, to actually expand that capacity for joy by consciously opening to and appreciating what's going well for others and working with the tendency to limitation or contraction. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But we really think it's important to also celebrate our own capacity for joy, the blessings in our life, the happiness there is, and really it takes a form of gratitude then to really appreciate everything that we have. But if you really look at the Buddhist path, the aim of this practice, it is for the ending of suffering. That's what the Buddha taught and and all of these practices are about. Well, one very simple definition of the ending of suffering is happiness. So it's not a bypath. It really is central to what we're practicing here and what these teachings are all about. But we can only deepen this quality of happiness and joy if we really understand it, if we know what it is that actually makes us happy. And I've said to a number of people that I uh, encourage a contemplation or reflection on all of the meta phrases. You know, what does it mean to be safe, to actually spend some time sitting with that? What does it mean to be happy? What is happiness for you and health and ease? But in this particular case, what is happiness? What do we mean by happiness? And what, what are the limitations to that sense of happiness or well-being? What, what blocks that for us? And we can do that contemplation in a moment right now over this period of retreat and practice or in the larger picture in our lives to really helpful and important contemplation. What is this access to happiness. What is happiness? All of you, I think, have been on some form of retreat or done some practice before, so you've heard the basic teachings of Buddhism and you know that there's an emphasis on the Four Noble Truths and uh, and it can seem from that teaching that Buddhism is a lot about suffering And I always cringe a little when I hear on the radio or, you know, someone being interviewed who obviously doesn't know much about Buddhism, and they translate the first noble truth as something like, well, the Buddha said, life is suffering, you know, life is all suffering. This is not true. The Buddha did not say that. But he did say, there is suffering. There is a truth of suffering that suffering is uh, an aspect of being alive. Some form of suffering will be our experience sooner or later. That is what he said, not that everything is suffering. But we can get this idea that if we're serious practitioners, it's all about suffering. You know, we have to focus on suffering. You know, we should be suffering. If we're a good Buddhist, we're suffering because, you know, that's (laughs) what it's all about. And that any kind of joy or happiness we experience is just a distraction. It's fleeting. We shouldn't get attached. You know, don't pay attention to that. Come back to the suffering. You know, where's the suffering? That's, That's where it's all at. Again, a misunderstanding of what the teachings are about. The teachings are about happiness. They're about the end of suffering. And qualities like happiness and joy and rapture are actually central to the Buddha's teachings and to these practices. The deep development of qualities like happiness, joy, and rapture, very important. And that the Buddha never talked about suffering without talking about the end of suffering. This is so clear. He was actually called the happy one, the radiant one. And people often commented on the, his community of monks and nuns talking about how happy and contented they seemed from their practice. And he would just nod and smile and say, yes, that's the goal of this practice, is this kind of happiness. So I actually like this reframing of the Four Noble Truths that I've heard, where the First Noble Truth is actually there is happiness. Second noble truth, there's a cause of happiness which is non-grasping, acceptance, connectedness, contentment. It's possible to abide in happiness, third noble truth. And there's a path to happiness, the Eightfold Path. Just as, as uh, relevant and true as the other framing So to actually cultivate this practice of happiness, we need to know what happiness is. Because the more we use it, or in our culture, it can seem kind of trite, trivial, this word happiness. It gets used so often. But what the Buddha is pointing to, what these practices are pointing to, is actually something more profound than our common or superficial understanding of the word the Pali term that's often used to translate this term happiness is sukha, opposite of dukkha, sukha. <laughs> and Steve Armstrong translates it or defines it as the happy contentment of mind and body. I like that translation. It's actually quite a subtle feeling but it's very profound and actually can be quite life transforming when we first truly experience the kind of happiness that these practices and the Buddha was talking to, a a happiness that's not dependent on conditions, that's not dependent on who we are or what we look like or what we have, but just out of an inner sense of well-being, contentment and joy. The Dalai Lama, that one man publishing industry, has uh, written a book some time ago called The Art of Happiness that I really enjoyed reading. And he talks about happiness as being our birthright. Again, central to our path and our practice. Not something that's just a nice byproduct, but actually quite central. And central to a sense of well being that enables us to continue on the path and do this kind of work. And so he talks a lot about the necessity of working with the difficult states of mind that prevent us from being being happy. So it's really a kind of two-pronged approach. One is this active cultivation of happiness, the openness to happiness and joy. But just as important is the willingness to do the work of purification, just as we've been doing here, really actively working with those impediments to happiness, the constrictions, the fears, the judgments that prevent us from being happy. And this book has a lot of practical advice on uh, doing that work. It's a really helpful book. It was actually co-written, You know, it's basically a, a man, a psychotherapist, who interviewed the Dalai Lama over a period of time and, and uh, constructed the book out of that. And this man, this therapist, talks about his own training as a therapist and how it was all about reducing neuroses and kind of getting people back to quote normal but no instruction on actually encouraging happiness in in bringing delight and well-being it was just you know basically people are pretty screwed up the best we can do is hope to get them back to some middle ground and he really has seen uh, that there's another whole dimension to the work he can do with people and the possibility for happiness. And of course, this is a whole trend that's going on in psychology and, and uh, psychotherapy now, the positive psychology movement. A great uh, advance, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm sure most people, that it is possible to actively cultivate these qualities, these beautiful qualities of heart and mind. But if we're going to cultivate it, we need to know what it is. What is happiness, as I keep saying. And to see that it's not about getting a new car or a new computer or holiday or whatever experience, internal or external, you thought might be it. It's not to deny the happiness of those kinds of experiences. There can be some real joy and delight in that. But we know as practitioners that that's just temporary. Whatever happiness is gained from that is fleeting. It will change. So we need to look a little deeper because that's an endless quest if that's our source of happiness. I read a little while ago in the New York Times, this top executive in some big company took a close look at his life. There was a whole article about the dissatisfaction that's rampant at, you know, the different levels of society. And uh, this, this guy took a close look at his life and decided that he wasn't happy. This is a quote. I wasn't getting the same rush from it that I, that I had in the past, Mr. Bowen recalled. I loved the money, but at a certain moment I bought the expensive car, the expensive watch, the more expensive house, and I realized, I'm doing a job I'm not sure I, sure I want to do, so I can buy a more expensive watch. And it was just kind of that questioning, where does it end? You know, if it's about getting stuff, well, there's always more stuff to get. But does it actually make you happy? It's a really good question to ask. There's a book that James uh, turned me on to that I know he, uh, has influenced him, and he's friends with the people who, the guys who wrote it. Great book called The Nine Choices of Extremely Happy People How We Choose to Be Happy. And what they did was go around and go to all these different communities and just ask the people in the community, who's the happiest person you know? And when a num- the, the same name kept coming up, they'd go interview that person and find out what. what what their secret was. Well, they found out that it wasn't accidental. They weren't born happy. It wasn't that they won the lottery. They actually made these conscious choices. So they refined it into these nine choices. But what I liked from that book is their definition of happiness. And I use it a lot. It's a great um, litmus test or pointing. So this this is their definition of happiness. Happiness is a profound, enduring feeling of contentment, capability, and centeredness. It's a rich sense of well-being that comes from knowing that you can deal productively and creatively with all life offers, both the good and the bad. It's knowing your internal self and responding to your real needs rather than the demands of others. And it's a deep sense of engagement Living in the moment and enjoying life's bounty. It's a great description. And it's very Dharmic. It's really about being present. It's not about getting stuff, but being content with what you have and being engaged and alive in your life, really present. So I, I come back to that again and again as a kind of standard for happiness. And, of course, you probably know that happiness is in at the moment. It's a very popular topic. We have Mr. Joy over here who's (laughs) helped thousands of people become happier. A wonderful credit to James and his work. And there's many other ways in which this movement is just uh, becoming alive. And there's a reason for that. It's because there's so much unhappiness. There's so much discontent in this culture, this society. So much a sense of unfulfillment, of people having ideas of what life should be like and realizing that they're not finding what it is they thought they should find. Having achieved everything they were told they should achieve or gotten everything they thought they should get and it doesn't do it in some deep way for them, they're still unhappy. And, of course, there were those studies that have been done about what they called the happiness set point, where they've looked at people that had either extreme good luck or extreme bad luck. And extreme good luck for this study was winning the lottery. Well, I don't know. That's not my definition. There are some horror stories about winning people who won the lottery or having a terrible accident or some illness. And what they found is, yes, there was an initial impact, there was an initial impact. Of these experiences of either joy or happiness, you know, sense of excitement or despair or unhappiness for the difficult stuff. But after six months or so these people all came back to pretty much where they were before whatever it was happened. And it was really interesting to see it wasn't like this would do it. That the lottery or whatever it was that happened would make them happy Or the challenge, the illness, the disability would make them unhappy. They had this set point. Now further study has shown that yes, that's true if you don't do anything different. If you don't change the way you relate to your experience. But actually if you engage creatively with your mind and your heart and your experience it's totally possible to change the level of happiness that we can have. And of course, we wouldn't be doing this practice if we didn't think that was so. It is possible that you can become more happy. There's, as I said, a lot of research about this. So another study I read about, and there's lots of these, it's like which, where is the happiest place? Who are the happiest people? And this is the Happy Planet Index that was compiled by a British think tank, the New Economics Foundation. And apparently they looked at all kinds of different um, factors in a country, it's a, by country, so in a, in a country like life satisfaction, life expectancy, environmental footprint, lots of different factors, and um, came up with a list, as they like to do, of the happiest places. So Again, there's been lots of these studies, but what, what do you think was the happiest country? Nepal. Bhutan. Bhutan. Bhutan? No. Gross happiness index, but I don 't think they've been Somewhere in Holland or Vanuatu. I don 't even know where that is. it's a little country in the South Pacific. It 's one of these, you know, in some ways, I guess somewhat of a tropical paradise. It's only got 200,000 people. Mm-hmm. Very um, simple lifestyle there. And so they asked someone, all the reporters, of course, went there and said, why do you think this little country won this index? And this person said, people are generally happy here because they are satisfied with very little. Life here is about community and family and goodwill to people. Well, when I read that, it made me think, huh? where is it? Contented and easily satisfied, frugal and uh, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, wishing, you know, in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. This is what the sutta is wishing for, what he is talking about in their, in their country. That's the, that's the kind of thing that makes for happiness. Where do you think the U.S. was on that list? 28th, 150th. Australia was 154th. Hopefully we can, you know, now 90 people are going out a little bit happier. Maybe we can move up on the index. (laughs) So, of course, there's no point just doing these kind of studies if it's just to say, well, you know, there's Vanuatu and there's the U.S. They said, you know, is it possible to change? And, of course, they really didn't have a clue but we do, it is possible to change. It is possible to radically shift the degree of happiness and joy we have in our lives. As I said, James has written this beautiful book, Awakening Joy, and has done now many series of classes on the capacity to awaken joy in our lives. And by now, thousands of people have benefited from it. And it's an amazing class and set of teachings that really shifts the way people experience their lives and there's uh, you know many testimonials to it on his website and in his book but one that I liked, this is someone who said, this course changed my life. I understand now that I have a lot more to do with experiencing joy than I thought. To be joyful had always seemed like luck or some kind of accident even and I felt like I was a victim of life circumstances. I now see that I have more control over how often I experience joy. I can choose to be happy and choose to be unhappy, even miserable. Joy seems to occur more often as a result of this realization. So it's definitely possible. We just need to make it conscious, alive, and then it's everywhere. It's accessible. It's wonderful. So this Brahma Vihara, like all of them, has the near and far enemy. The near enemy is exuberance and the far enemy is envy or jealousy. And our willingness to work with those when they arise is part of what will allow this capacity for joy and happiness to actually deepen, it can be quite challenging. The near enemy. Um, it's interesting that it's exuberance. Maybe it didn't make much sense because that seems like a good thing, right? Exuberance, and but you know, there's qualities of exuberance that, of course, fine. But what I think this is really pointing to is some kind of. Uh, real uprush of energy that's combined with a lot of thinking, especially future thinking. Won't it be great if? I want to get more of. And there's a kind of toppling forward, a lifting up and a toppling forward into the future. And there's a lot of grasping in it, a lot of attachment to whatever is happening, to the joy that's being experienced, and, and there's a lot of ego investment. Usually, there's a lot of "I want," "Isn't this great?" "I can have," "It will be," you know, kind of thing. So there's a lot of fantasy and excitement in this, and it can get us into trouble because in that, you know, we're, we're not staying grounded or connected. Again, a great example, my favorite 20th century philosopher, Calvin. Uh, This is another one of the cartoon strips where he's got his little red, uh, um, what do you call it? Wagon, Wagon, thank you. Little red wagon and they're trudging off and here's Calvin. My life could be a lot better than it is. I'm happy, but it's not like I'm ecstatic. (laughs) And then they start to pull the the wagon up this hill. Life is like topography, Hobbes. There are summits of happiness and success and then they start to push so that they're uh, getting acceleration going down the hill. Flat stretches of boring routine going further down. Valleys of frustration and failure and they're hurtling, you know, through the woods. But I'm dedicating myself to experiencing only peaks. I want my life to be one never-ending ascension. Every minute of every day should bring me greater joy than the previous minute. (laughs) I should always be saying my life is better than I ever imagined it would be and it's only going to get better. And now they're hurtling off the cliff as often ha- As they're in the air, I'm just going to jump from peak to peak to whoops. And Calvin, uh, Hobbes, the voice of reason, at least with flat places you don't have so far to go down. And, you know, So they're tumbling down through the air and Calvin's still saying only losers go down. For me, it's going, always going to be up, up, up. So that's exuberance. It's like thinking it can only get better, and this is great, and I want more. And we get into trouble with that. It's not sustainable. So we take that energy, because the energy itself is a great energy, and see if we can allow it to actually be balanced and, and integrated into the body, into the mind. So there's a sense of uh, the openness is still there, but we're actually present with what's true in the moment, not falling into that uh, sense of you know endless possibility that just gets us into trouble. But actually here, with the happiness that's available right now, that's the best kind of happiness, not this kind of tumbling into the future. The far enemy is envy or jealousy. And this is where this practice of mudita gets really sticky because it's really hard for us to admit that we have this quality yet I'd be surprised if there any of you who didn't have a twinge of that as you did this practice when you think about someone who is got seems like they've got a lot and you're wishing them more it's kind of like hmm you know what's wrong with this picture um, <laughs> so it it comes up, it certainly did for me when I did it so it 's any time we you know begrudge someone something we wish they didn 't have it, we want it for ourselves we, we don 't think they should have so much it 's this sense of limitation, and it 's really out of this belief that I spoke of earlier. If they have it, it means i don 't somehow it means less for me. This is a misbelief, and this sense of limitation or this sense of contraction around someone else's seeming abundance can actually often be based in an illusion. We have a whole set of projections about someone else and begrudge them what we see as their happiness because we're not seeing the full picture of their life. I remember a, a while ago a guy and I were traveling to teach and got picked up by someone who was going to host us and taken to their home. And it was one of these beautiful homes, just the kind I like, you know, a lot of wood and open and light, very well decorated. These people seem to have, a, you know, good jobs and just a good relationship. And I was, you know really enjoying meeting them, but I could feel in me just this little twinge of, you know, why isn't my home as nice as this? Why don't I have, you know, this kind of, you know, refrigerator? I even forget what it is, you know. (laughs) Just that sense of limitation and could feel that, you know, it, it felt uncomfortable. And as I got to know these people, very nice people, and heard the fullness of their life, you know, they, like everyone, had suffering and just having a nice home doesn't do it yet my initial response was just seeing superficially what seemed so you know wonderful for them but it's not you know for everyone it's a a life of joy and sorrow and our tendency towards jealousy or limitation doesn't let us see that so we're often acting out of some sense of illusion and of course these days this this uh, illusion about um the happiness of fame and fortune i mean it 's just getting to ridiculous proportions. the obsession with being famous people will do anything these days i mean it 's kind of scary, and of course you don 't you don't have to scratch the surface very much to see how, how unhappy most of those people are who who get or you know unhappy in some levels, um, even if it 's just being constantly barraged by paparazzi or whatever, no privacy but this, this lust in our society out of the envy of what they think these people have. And envy is almost celebrated. There's a, there's a computer that's called the envy. There's a nightclub. There's even a magazine called envy. You know, oh, I want more of that. Let's, you know, buy envy magazine. It's, and, you know, sometimes we can feel ourselves being envious of something someone else has, even if we don't actually want that. You know, to really look at it, it's like, if they have it, I want it. And then you are like, no, I don't. I don't want that. It's kind of scary. And again, the research showing that people grow accustomed to what they have, however much of it there is. Moreover, having a lot of things is not enough if other people have more. If other people have more, it doesn't become enough. And so this sense of limitation and looking out there, there's always the happiness is out there in what we can get. Such distorted thinking. Another philosopher I sometimes appreciate, you might know, Swami Beyondananda, (laughs) writes uh, in a magazine that I get. And this is a little piece called, The Heart of the Matter is the Matter of the Heart. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Everyone is equipped to attune to universal wisdom because everyone has been given a heart. And yet, the heart seems to be the last gift we open. The most undeveloped resource on the planet is the treasure inside our own treasured chest. Given all the craziness in the world, Maybe if we invested in expanding our hearts, we'd have less need to shrink our heads. (laughs) And less of a need to be so all consumed by consumerism. We have learned to spend so much energy pursuing happiness that we never stop to think what would happen if we actually caught it. Mm -hmm. Or rather, if it caught us. With all this hot pursuit, we have left real happiness in the dust. It is sad indeed that we end up jealous that someone else's happiness might be bigger than our own. Freud called this happiness envy. As the saying goes, money can't buy happiness, although it can buy antidepressants. But if you are seeking more out of life than not being depressed, the key to happiness is to grow your own. Every one of us should be asking, what good am I? What good can I add to the greater goodness? Maybe if we had greater goodness, we'd need fewer goods. So this sense that happiness is an inequality, not about getting or having anything, but we need to really see or admit this belief, this sense of inner lack or limitation, if it's there, if it uh, manifests as envy or jealousy or just this sense of contraction that we can have about the capacity for happiness. And of course, not to judge that. It is a a really common and deeply conditioned tendency and our willing to see that and to work with it is the beginning of freeing ourselves from that as an obstacle to our suffering. And so turning towards it as we do in our practice, feeling the suffering nature of that, it is a contraction, you can literally feel the contraction that comes. And recognizing that it's an obstacle to appreciating what we actually have, if we're living from that place of deficiency, of not enoughness or that I'll only be happy if I get what they have or what's out there. So we challenge those assumptions that I need this to be happy, that if they're happy I'm not, I can't be happy, or there's only so much to go around. We really need to challenge that. And to see what is it that we truly need to be happy. This is such a profound question. What's enough? What are our true needs rather than just the desires that come and go? I've got a friend who um, has, I think, one of the most beautiful houses I've seen. Really delightful, very comfortable, large, spacious, well-furnished. But it's a burden because it's so big. And she went on a vacation where she lived in this very simple cottage and came back and looked at this big house and said, What am I doing? You know, I spend all my life taking care of this house and the grounds, and I don't need that to be happy. So we really need to question what is, what is this uh, concept of true happiness for us? And to actively look for the places, the experiences that are there all around us for joy and happiness. And we can only do this once we really understand what happiness is what joy is, what well-being and contentment is. And it can be the simplest things. Again, from my family, a a little while ago my sister sent me a photograph that was of my, the same niece who got the package of, from the dollar store, um, meditating. And it made me so happy. She's a, she's a little older, maybe ten, and what had happened is the Sunday paper in Australia had, with the, with the Sunday paper, sent every subscriber a DVD of yoga, doing yoga as a, as a health um, benefit to the whole population. And it ended with a little period of uh, meditation. So they would do the yoga, and then there was this photo of this little 10-year-old with her, you know, she got the posture, and, and it just... I mean, it was so delightful, obviously, because I care about meditation, but I just saw what it represented for her, for my sister who struggles sometimes as a single parent. Just delightful, the simplest thing like that. A little while ago, um, Guy and I went, we were in New York uh, to go to a teacher conference, so we spent a few days there and went to some museums, and we went to MoMA, Mm -hmm. been to New York a couple of times, and both of us just got such happiness Going around and seeing paintings that we'd only seen in photographs or in books before. And we see why they become these valued works of art, why they're so precious. There's something moving, archetypal, that speaks to us in these works of art. And to see them in person. Van Gogh's Starry Night. um, One that I love, Rousseau's The Sleeping Gypsy. It just made me smile to see these pieces of art. One of my favorites was to go into this room they have where they have three big triptychs of um, Monet's water lilies. And you go and sit there and you'd like in this French garden with the, the rippling shimmering colors and of course by now we're we're kind of used to Monet's water lilies, you know. You can go into the MoMA store and buy a coffee cup or a mouse pad with, you know, Mo- Monet's water lilies on it. But I was listening to the audio and it describes a letter written by someone who in the, you know, 18 1800s whenever he painted them, who saw them for the first time. And this person was just ecstatic at this vision of this 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 uh, beauty. This life, what was coming out of this painting. I mean, just to get a sense of what it would be like to see that with fresh eyes. It was beautiful enough knowing it as well as we do. It's just such joy and beauty, in, in beauty, in art. And of course, the internet is this constant source, you know, some waste of time, of course, but every now and then treasures that come across that just make you smile and Great to share with people. You feel this little ripple as everyone watches a video or sees a photo. One of my favorites is Where the Hell is Matt? Do you know that one, the dancing guy? He, this guy who dances really badly, and he just made a thing of taking a video of himself dancing badly all over the world in all these different situations. And he did the first one. It was kind of a hit. But then he got the idea to do it again, and he'd start off on his own with, you know... Papuan, and you know natives and korean gods and in the desert and but eventually he had all these people joining him he arranged for people to come and join him and as they join there's just this upwelling of every time i see it it makes me smile there's just such a sense of delight in this people coming together and just dancing badly <laughs> to in this video you know the free hugs video you just it lights you up to, to, to see that and share that with others. So at any moment, happiness is possible. Happiness can arise. And as you tune in to your own happiness, to um, the happiness of others, the happiness of nature, just see the possibility. Having, I was going to say a quiet mind, that, that helps, a, a present mind is what really helps. We need to be present I'm sure you've noticed being here for this week on retreat, joy in the simplest things, a piece of fruit, the sun coming up over the ridge and drying out the morning fog, You know, a little breath of, of cool air on a hot summer day. If we're there, there's just so much joy. But it doesn't mean that we need to, you know, we're, we're just kind of, in this bliss bliss ninny kind of state of only looking for joy, actually deepening wisdom can really increase our capacity for happiness because we're in harmony with things the way they are. So a true understanding of impermanence, that all of these things I just described are impermanent. We can't hold on to them, can't hold on to a sunrise or a sunset. And so a deep knowing of that, understanding of that, actually increases our ability to be present and really know happiness, be fully present. This is exemplified in this great teaching many of you know from Ajahn Chah about the glass. He said, Ajahn Chah is a uh, great Thai forest meditation master. How can you have right understanding, he says, I can answer you simply by using this glass of water I am holding. It appears to us as clean and useful, something to drink from and keep for a long time. Right understanding is to see this as broken glass, as if it has already been shattered. Sooner or later it will be shattered. If you keep this understanding while you are using it, that all this, all it is, is a combination of elements which come together in this form and then break apart, then no matter what happens to this glass, you will have no problems. The body is like this glass. It is also going to break apart and die. You have to understand that. Yet when you do, it doesn't mean you should go out and kill yourself, just as you shouldn't take the glass and break it or throw it away. The glass is something to use until it falls apart in its own natural way. In the same way, the body is a vehicle to use until it goes its own way. Your task is to see what the natural way of things is. This understanding can make you free in all the changing circumstances of the world. And there's a joy in that freedom because we're aligned with the way things are, the truth of things. So we get to see the power of intention, the power of presence. We're making choices all the time, all the time. Our old habits can lead us to making choices that tend to fear or contraction, a sense of limitation or worry or judgment. We can begin to make choices consciously out of this sense of presence, of aliveness, that actually lead to acceptance and happiness and contentment. This is the opportunity, the possibility that's here every moment, whatever's happening, that happiness is possible. Happiness can be here right now. And I wanna finish with one of, gosh, I'm getting a little one note here. I realize it's another horse poem. (laughs) It's called A Blessing by James Wright that just speaks to this evanescent nature of happiness. Just off the highway to Rochester, Minnesota, twilight bounds softly forth on the grass, and the eyes of these two Indian ponies darken with kindness. They have come gladly out of the willows to welcome my friend and me. We step over the barbed wire into the pasture where they had been grazing all day, alone. They ripple tensely, They can barely contain their happiness that we have come. They bow shyly as wet swans. They love each other. There is no loneliness like theirs. At home once more they begin munching the young tufts of spring grass in the darkness. I would like to hold the slenderer one in my arms for she has walked over to me and nuzzled my left hand. She is black and white The mane falls wild on her forehead and the light breeze moves me to caress her long ear. That is delicate as the skin over a girl's wrist. Suddenly I realize that if I stepped out of my body I would break into blossom. Let's just sit quietly and be happy. for your attention, half an hour for walking, and then we'll have our last sitting with chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.